On this episode of Athletic Training Chat, Greg talks with Julianne Schmidt and Emily Miller of the University of Georgia Concussion Research Laboratory. So much to cover in this episode. Uh, they will talk about the latest findings they've had, what the reason and the purpose is behind their concussion laboratory, some of their work with the DOD and the NCAA, and really everything in concussion that athletic trainers should be paying attention to. Some really fantastic work going on here, as well as many other places across the country, especially in this large um, collaborative project with the DOD and the NCAA around concussion. Uh, great information, well worth the listen. As always, we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine, but without further ado, please enjoy this episode with the University of Georgia Concussion Research Laboratory and Dr. Julianne Schmidt and Emily Miller. Uh, welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. We have some interesting guests for you guys today. Um, we are kind of taking our podcast to Georgia now, and we are talking with um, two employees at Georgia that work in the sports or the concussion research lab uh, at the University of Georgia. So um, we've got some bulldogs for you guys to kind of get their perspective. They got some uh, really neat things in the works, and um, I think you guys will appreciate. Uh, the insight that they're going to bring. So I guess to kind of turn it over to you guys, uh, if you want to maybe introduce yourselves and uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Sure. Uh, my name is Dr. Julianne Schmidt. I co-direct the UGA Concussion Research Lab and the Biomechanics Lab here at UGA. Um, I've been here since 2013 after finishing my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, prior to that, I was there also for my master's, and I'm originally from California, so I went to Point Loma Nazarene University, where I went through the accredited athletic training program. Awesome. Kind of bouncing all over the place then, uh, coast to coast then. Yep. Well, in direct contrast to that, I'm Emily Miller, and I am the research coordinator for the uh, concussion lab. Um, I actually have been a Bulldog since 2002 when I started my undergrad, and I have been here in different roles uh, since then. Um, I did my undergrad and then my uh, graduate assistantship in athletic training at UGA, and I've worked with the um, UGA football and women's soccer teams as a full-time staff athletic trainer after that. Awesome. Yeah, very cool. Um, I think we'll get a lot of interesting kind of points from definitely the research side of things, but also uh, we might kind of dive in with Emily's Division One experience. Um, that's not something that everyone gets to experience, so um, I think that'll be a good kind of segue as well. So uh, I guess for our listeners, we um, are definitely going to talk a lot about their concussion research lab. Uh, I highly recommend looking into um, the, the articles that they publish and a lot of the insight that they provide to the public here with um, their findings. We're gonna talk a little bit about the necessity of just continuing ongoing concussion research, maybe some um, kind of specific questions and topics that should maybe be addressed uh, in future research. And then, um, like I said, kind of we'll, we'll definitely dive in with um, both of you, but maybe especially Emily about just 
working at such a, a high level division one school. Um, and then we can maybe even talk about your guys's um, athletic training program. I know it's very, very respected. It's very um, kind of top notch. So uh, it'd be cool to kind of hear the insight from, you know, your guys' teaching perspective as well. So I guess uh, the first question that maybe um, jumpstart us here would be, what is the UGA Concussion Research Lab? Um, yeah, so the UGA Concussion Research Lab actually predates me. Mike Ferraro was at UGA for at least a decade before I got here, um, doing very novel, cutting-edge concussion research at a time when not a lot of people were paying attention to the injury. And as you know, the attention um, to the topic has grown a lot over the last 10, 15 years. Um, and then when I started here, uh, I, I was very fortunate to step into an environment where concussion research was valued and there was an infrastructure already in place. And I had sort of a footprint from when Mike Ferraro was here. Um, and since then, we've grown. So we have, um, like I said, I co-direct the lab with Rob Lionel. Um, so he and I oversee most of the operations. And then Emily is our research coordinator. We, she is mostly associated with the CARE Consortium grant that we have. Um, and then we have one postdoctoral fellow and five doctoral students. So, um, uh, and then probably about five or six undergrad research assistants as well. So quite a few of us now. Sure. Yeah, busy place. <laughs> um, so I guess how, how unique is it to have such a large research lab, especially for concussions kind of in the country? Um, it's pretty unique, um, but I would also say that if you look at the great programs across the country, they're, they are about our size or close to our size that in order to do this topic justice with all of the unanswered questions around concussion, you have to have a lot of people and a lot of hands. And so um, it, I think most programs are probably smaller but the, the ones, the really great, when you think about really great concussion research programs, they usually have two or more faculty contributing to the topic and, and then quite a few doctoral students and research coordinators with them. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously very necessary. And uh, I think, you know, we can only take a certain amount of steps with, um, you know, the minimal help that we've kind of had in the past. And I think that this is, you know, just a great, great thing you guys have going and hopefully it continues to grow and you guys can, you know, keep, keep doing your cutting edge uh, research findings and all that. Mm -hmm. so I guess with your concussion research lab, um, do you guys work closely with UGA sports, um, maybe certain sports more than others, or how does that kind of bridge into the athletic side of things? So the way that it works um, for us, uh, when we got the CARE Consortium grant, um, I guess in 2014, um, the way that grant was set up was to um, streamline the, the evaluation and concussion kind of process across the sites, um, basically to help build a large research database for um, people like Dr. Schmidt to um, you know, answer research questions about. So um, what we do at UGA is, um, is we baseline test every athlete every, um, at the beginning of the consortium, it was every athlete every year for the first three years. Um, so that was, you know, 400 plus athletes that we baseline tested every year. Um, after the first three years, it became just baseline testing new athletes, so new to the team. Um, and then we also, any athlete that has a concussion, we 
we manage their post-injury care. So um, that we work very closely with the athletic trainers um, over in the athletic department um, as far as getting the athletes in for post-injury testing at different time points. And then, you know, we compile reports to give to them for their clinical management of the athlete. Awesome. We also um, coordinate their concussion education. So the NCAA requirement that every athlete receives concussion education every year. And so we've built a UGA specific educational module that they view and, and counts towards their NCAA required education component. Um, and that's been kind of another fun element to our work too. Yeah, wow, that's uh, very, I, I mean, that's the first time I've heard of you guys or a school creating their own kind of educational program. And uh, mm -hmm. that's just very cool to, to think about the, kind of the extra work that you guys are able to do and accomplish with that. So um, hopefully that catches on to, you know, smaller schools like ours and, and all across the country. I know um, that's definitely not a, a standard with smaller schools. I can tell you that right away. So that's, that's very cool. Yeah. It's actually funny you say that because that we had that same thing in mind when we built it because we wanted it, you know, that mandate applies to D2 and D3 schools. And so we wanted to build it in a way that was, feasible for other athletic models too. So we, we actually collaborated with Emory, who's a D3 school and Valdosta State is a D2 school um, on the module because of that very reason that the infrastructure and the resources here to accomplish that mandate are so different than like what other sites have, even division one sites. So. Sure. Well, that's, I mean, that's awesome. And that's super helpful. I'm sure to just about everyone that would look into that. So um, keep it up. I know that that's, you know, sounds redundant, but, you know, there's definitely a need for, for helping out kind of the smaller divisions, especially, you know, unfortunately in these times right now, we, um, not everyone has the biggest budget. So uh, it's nice to, you know, not have to certainly build everything on your own if you can use sources like your guys's. So mm -hmm. uh, very cool. I guess you kind of touched base on this a little bit, but um, how do the coaches and teams kind of rely on your guys's um, concussion lab do they want you to do specific research kind of with their athletes or is it more or less just you know get them in for baseline and then get them treated if something um, does happen um so i would say that from a concussion evaluation standpoint that protocol is very you know stand standard has a lot of measures in it we will explore new and novel measures sometimes but we we do work with athletics quite a bit. So I mentioned the evaluation baseline evaluation process, the um, education module. We also do biomechanics screenings for certain sports. So especially sports at high risk for lower extremity injury, um, we'll bring in athletes at their during their freshman year, their first year at the university, and do a full three D motion capture. Um, cutting task and jumping task as a screener for injury and readiness to return to play if they have a history. So we, um, we work closely with them and collaborate and um, it's a symbiotic relationship where we can get really good research ideas by maintaining our um, presence in a in the clinical realm and by, and they benefit from that by having the services that we provide to um, alleviate some of their their duties and some of their responsibilities. Sure. Yeah, very cool. Um, I guess, Emily, a question for you. Um, what is it like being the 
uh, coordinator for the research lab, since you guys are obviously, you know, very busy seeing all these athletes doing some of your own projects. Um, you guys have, you know, a few grants right now as well. So um, kind of what's, what's a day in the life like for um, coordinating all this stuff? Uh, well, that depends a lot on what time of year it is. So really from about June until like mid-September, October, um, we're really working on baselines. It was obviously a lot different this year with how we had to do those with a lot of the um, safety and COVID regulations that we um, had to put in, we put in place uh, to be able to do all that safely. But um, it's a lot of, well, let me back up. So because of my background in clinical athletic training, um, I'm kind of in a unique position where I've worked very closely with a lot of the clinical staff um, on that side of it. And so I think that helps me a lot understand, you know, just the demands on the athlete's time and demands on the athletic trainer and helps kind of uh, smooth that relationship to getting, you know, the, the, one of the biggest hurdles is just scheduling. It's a lot of uh, back and forth. And like I said, a lot of demands on the athletes and the athletic trainer's time and you know, this isn't as important as we think it is. It's not always the number one priority on their end um, for, you know, whatever reason. But um, so a day in the life would be, you know, a lot of baseline testing um, takes about an hour per athlete uh, to go through our whole battery of tests. Um, sometimes in there, there's also a lot of uh, post-injury management. So it may be, you know, I'm seeing a football player for a 48 hour post-injury eval and I'm seeing a tennis player for an asymptomatic assessment and um, putting together their reports and sending them to the athletic trainers and the physicians and the neuro neuropsychologists to kind of, you know, everybody is on the same page with that. So um, some days are more running around than others. Some days are more data management and getting things put in the right systems and keeping up with the other things, but it's a, it's a good balance, I think for me. Sounds like it definitely uh, keeps you busy. Uh, and then I guess Dr. Schmidt, um, so you do a little bit of teaching at Georgia, I understand. Yep, that's um, correct. What is it like kind of balancing uh, your teaching role with doing some of this research? And many things <laughs> for you are um, involved with other things as well. So I guess, what is your day like at Georgia? Yeah, good question. Um, those are two different demanding tasks. I was saying on my way here, I just got done teaching, so I'm kind of switching gears to think more about my research. So I do feel that way a lot where I'm I'm switching between one hat to another. Um, but also I try to talk about my research and the importance of research in general in all my athletic training courses because I do think it's something that athletic trainers need to have a good understanding and appreciation for. Um, and so I'm often telling them about studies and results that we have that are coming out that are new and then also just reiterating like hey do you know the sensitivity and specificity of that test and do you know you know how long has it been out you know how, how much have you thought about a lot of this stuff and trying to build that into my teaching as well but um, I teach both currently I teach the lower or sorry upper extremity evaluation course um, and then also the organization and administration and sports medicine course, um, both really fun courses. I really love, um, ONA cause it's like topics that everyone thinks is boring. And I like to prove to them that they are not that boring. They're actually really relevant and kind of show them the, the debate side of it all and how to, you know, look at different things. So lots of fun, but a lot of switching between the, the two roles. 
Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I give both of you guys a lot of credit for, you know, being able to adapt to everything that you guys kind of have on your plates. And um, obviously I'm only a student right now, so I haven't quite experienced that, that work life yet, but um, just hearing about kind of all the things that you're involved in and then doing cutting edge research on top of that is got to be a little bit taxing. So um, I know we thank you as a profession. So um, I just wanted to get that out there for sure. But um, it sounds like both you guys are doing, you know, great things for the university and for the profession as well. So um, I guess to kind of segue, why, why is it so important that we um, kind of keep with more advanced concussion research? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think hopefully all athletic trainers know the obvious answer to that, right? Is that we just, there's so much we don't know about concussion. Um, and maybe if you're newer to the profession, you might not feel that as much that way as people who've been in the profession for longer, who kind of lived through that era where we realized concussions were a big deal. And then we're left in a period of time where we had a lot of questions and no answers. Um, and so now we're, we're getting better and a lot of our clinical practices are much more sound and much more evidence-based and, and at least we have clinical practices for concussion now and standards. Um, but the, the, there's still a lot of lingering questions out there. Um, and a lot of things that we don't know from a very basic level, to how to make our evaluation process that every athletic trainer uses or some version of it um, better and more efficient, um, all the way to questions about links between subconcussive head trauma and late life outcomes. So um, there's a, in any area of concussion research you look, there's new and different questions and challenges um, that are that we need to address. And I think that athletic trainers in general sit in a really interesting and important position to answer a lot of these questions. Now concussion research is really cool because it's, um, it's interdisciplinary, right? You can have a, a neuroscientist, you can have a neurologist and a neuropsychologist and an athletic trainer and a PT all at the same table that all bring different expertise. But I just think that the athletic trainers have this really unique clinical understanding of concussion and are really well suited and positioned to see the interesting questions while also understanding the clinical implications and like whether that recommendation is feasible or possible um, and understanding like what it means on a clinical sense is really kind of a unique thing about athletic trainers in concussion research. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Emily, do you feel like that, um, Kind of sums it up for you as more of a clinical side athletic trainer that gets to work with all these concussion um, patients and doing this concussion research all the time. Um, yeah, I was kind of echo what Dr. Schmidt was saying is, you know, I, it, I joke about it a lot where there will be this really cool research question or really cool research design and then it's like trying to apply it clinically. It doesn't always translate and um, it's kind of, you know, it's it's can be frustrating, but it's also interesting to understand like yeah it would be great if they athletes had equal motivation for all of these tests at the same time points because we just want them to be equally motivated to do everything but that's not how it actually works and why is that and what are some ways that we can get at um 
making motivating them differently or you know thinking about the way that their brain works or the way they're like I, I go back to demands on their time and things like that but especially with the concussion the education module um I think understanding like the a little bit more of like the psychology like Dr. Trent was getting at of, of why why do athletes report concussions versus not report concussions and why do they um what are the motivating factors that we can maybe try to address in a different way uh, with the, with that module and stuff, I think is really interesting. Sure. Yeah, definitely interesting. I mean, there's really a lot of room for improvement with concussions. Like you guys are saying, it's, um, I don't want to say behind the curve, but you know, when you look at orthopedic research compared to kind of this, um, you know, concussion, mental health, psychological aspects, um, you know, there's definitely a room for, you know, new questions, new answers. And I think, again, that's just why it's so important to have labs like you guys have and, you know, great researchers, great questions to answer. Um, you know, there, you can never have too much of that, in my opinion. So, um, you know, that's why we definitely appreciate what you guys do. And, you know, a lot of these other concussion uh, research labs, um, I think it's just a, it's a great segue into, you know, what we can really build the profession into. Um, so I guess I kind of did a little bit of digging and saw that one of your more recent um, kind of findings was with car, was it car accidents or car crash um, kind of patients. So um, you don't necessarily have to talk about that one specifically, but what have kind of been maybe some striking findings or um, kind of things that you guys have found in your, your research that's been like, wow, I, you know, I'm glad that we found this out and can apply it to so-and-so. Yeah, so I actually think to me that is one of the most striking areas of our research has been around post-concussion driving and the safety of it. It to me was something not even on people's radar until the last five years or so. The driving might even be impaired after a concussion and there really aren't any recommendations. Like we have pretty standardized and robust recommendations for when athletes can go back to sport and when they can go back to the classroom. But we need the same thing for when they're ready to drive a car again. And, and um, that doesn't just affect the athlete, that affects every single person on the road. So it has broader implications than any of our other recommendations. Um, so that I think has been one of the most striking is that driving, we've seen dr impaired driving even later on in recovery. And then we follow that up with some surveys to athletes to see how prevalent it was for them to drive after a concussion. And a little over 50% of them said that they did they didn't refrain from driving at any point, like literally drove home from the event that they got the concussion in. Um, and then, um, but that decision to drive was mostly hinged around what a healthcare provider told them to do. So the ones that did refrain mostly did so because a healthcare provider told them not to drive. And those that did drive did mainly pointed to the fact that they did continue to drive because no healthcare provider told them not to. And so it kind of pointed to that important role that athletic trainers play and all healthcare pro providers play in making those recommendations and how important those recommendations are and just how much our athletes um, value what we recommend um, and then we did a follow-up survey with athletic trainers too and looked at what their practices were around making driving recommendations and it 
pretty closely matched the athletes. It was kind of crazy actually that just under or just over half of athletic trainers frequently or regularly make recommendations to their patients not to drive after a concussion. Um, and then beyond that, they, there's really not a lot of specificity in those recommendations. So not much about how do you gradually return to driving? What accommodations should you make as you make that return? How long should you refrain? Um, and what uh, parts of your clinical exam should you use for determining when an athlete is um, getting ready to return to drive? So those are all still research questions that we have around that topic. And that's one that I'm really interested in. Um, Rob Lino, who we co-direct the lab with, um, also focuses a lot on musculoskeletal injury risk after a concussion. I think that's one that's been kind of interesting lately is why do people have an increased risk of musculoskeletal injury after a concussion? What about the concussion puts them at that risk? Um, so that's been an interesting area of emerging research. And then the other one is just the, what Emily was talking about a second ago is understanding why and fixing the fact that only 50% of athletes report their concussions. Like if we see 25 concussions in a year, that means really 50 happened. <laughs> just 25 people chose not to tell us about it or not to seek out our care. So how do we fix that? And it's a deeper rooted issue than they just don't know the signs and symptoms and you know it's much more cultural and these subcultures and sport and like masculinity and just all these underlying things that that stand in the way or deter athletes from seeking out care for a concussion has been an area where we're trying to make a contribution as well sure i know all that sounds very cutting edge and very necessary i mean uh, i i read your driving um one on your website there and I was just like it's something that I've never really crossed my mind before but um, you know obviously that should be something that every athletic trainer can you know at least recommend uh, after a concussion so um, yeah it's I, I highly recommend all of our listeners to check out your guys's page um, we'll link it below the podcast here but um, just you know do your research it's not that hard to to read some articles every now and then and these guys do a, a good job putting them out for us to read so um, I guess that's, you know, that's my take on it is it's, you know, it's necessary to just read the stuff and, um, you guys are doing a great job of ask, you know, asking those difficult questions and then trying to figure out an answer. I know that you know, especially regulating driving would be something difficult to maybe piece together, but the more research you have on it, the easier that kind of gets. So, um, I guess if you guys have anything else about maybe your position specifically at Georgia, um, feel free to chime in. Otherwise, um, I was going to kind of jump to our AT chat five questions. Um, so we ask these to all of our um, all of our people on the show, and uh, they're kind of general, but we just like to get everyone's insight on um, kind of some things that are pretty important to just expanding the profession. So um, I'll kind of give you guys a chance if you do have anything else, other um, concussion related, Georgia related, anything like that. No, I think we nailed it all. Emily, you got anything? Um, no. I mean, do you want to talk about the like general population, the health center stuff that y'all do too? Or? Oh, yeah. So we talked a lot about our relationship with athletics, but we also service the University Health Center at UGA. So any general student that gets a concussion can come see us and get the same post-concussion evaluation battery that our athletes get. 
Um, and that's been kind of a unique undertaking. The, the mechanisms and the recoveries are very different in that group. Um, and so that's taught us a lot more about concussion outside of sport. And that's been kind of a unique um, clinical and research sample to look at. Awesome. Well, I mean, that's an awesome resource to have. I know that that's got to be, you know, not just unique for you guys, but I, I can't think of any other place that, you know, kind of offers that to just their general students and, um, you know, in their population. So uh, awesome. I, you know, hope you guys the best with continuing, you know, all of those avenues. Um, so I guess the first question that I'll have both of you answer would be, um, where do you see the athletic training profession going? within the next five to 10 years. Gonna go first, Emily. Golly, uh, I feel like I hardly work even in athletic training, um, but you know, obviously with all the changes to the education and stuff, I think that that's all positive uh, for the profession as far as getting us more equal footing with other, um, you know, post uh, post, what's the word, post undergrad, like certifications like PT and, um, OT and things like that. So I think that that's a really positive move. Um, I mean, I haven't been practicing clinically in six plus years now, so I feel like I'm a little bit out of the loop of some of the professional stuff, but, um, I'm excited to see how that integrates. I think it's going to take obviously a few years to be fully, fully footed, but Mm -hmm. see where that goes sure yeah I um I think in the next five to ten years is a big question mark with the the transition to the masters I think I and I hope it will be a good change for our profession I think it will be good educationally and it will raise hopefully our standard for ourselves in a way that makes athletic trainers demand higher salaries and demand medical autonomy and to make a profession that is more fit for longevity and a career in athletic training. And I think those are going to be critical things that we set a foundation for in the next five to 10 years as a profession. And then from a research standpoint, I just to be candid, I have some concerns on how research, how it's going to affect research because a lot of people, including myself, got their start in research doing a master's thesis, which in a lot of programs is not going to fit in very well, that, you know, amongst all the AT curriculum and everything that an athletic training has, student has to do, especially at a master's level, how many programs are going to require or at least offer a thesis. And that's where so many athletic trainers get their first exposure to and fall in love with research. Now, not all of them fall in love. And I totally understand that like, there's just a subset of nerds like me, but I worry that if they're never exposed, that that, that will cause our number of athletic training researchers to dwindle over time. And the athletic training research has come so far in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, you would, it'd be very rare to hear of an athletic trainer getting federal funding to do any sort of research related to athletic training topics. And now it's like, it's common, right? It's not unheard of. There's a, there are researchers out there doing this all the time. And so I'm nervous about that part. I think if you had told me when I was an undergrad going in my master's program that I would be doing research, I would have like laughed. I literally would have laughed and said, you're crazy. There's no way. But then I did it and I didn't know I liked it until I did it. So I'm a little worried about 
how that might affect um, people entering a research career in athletic training. Yeah, no, those are all very good points. And uh, I guess we'll kind of have to see where it goes. Um, uh, next question would be, what advice would you give yourself as a young athletic trainer or researcher if you want to um, kind of tackle both avenues here? Um, I mean, uh, I would say just to enjoy it while, while you're in that moment. Like there's been so many, um, I've had a couple different um, just clinical settings that I've worked in and a couple different changes uh, for different reasons. And I think overall it's just enjoy it while it's working for you. And if it's not working, then find another setting that does work. And that's kind of been how my career at UGA has evolved. And, um, you know, I don't know where it's going to go for after this, but I would say, yeah, be an advocate for yourself and, you know, don't be afraid to make a change if something is not, it's not a good fit, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing I always tell our incoming students, which I would tell myself if I were back back then, but um, is that like you're at the doorstep of one of the coolest professions in the world and that you will not meet a group of grittier and cooler, hardworking, smart people than you'll see in the profession of athletic training and just to kind of indulge in that and, and enjoy that. Um, and then the other thing I always tell people is to enjoy the now. Like it's really easy when you're in school to be like, well, when I graduate this, when I'm done with, uh, when I pass the BOC this, when I'm done with grad school, then I'll be happy, right? But um, after those benchmarks will be the next thing. And there's always going to be one more thing to look forward to or time point to, look, to, to be happy at. And so just, why not look at what you've got now and, and be happy with where you're at and uh, to not push it off and wait until X, X and X happens to just revel in the moment. Awesome. Well, yeah. Great advice from both of you. So thank you. Um, thank you for that. Our next question for you is um, what has been kind of the most influential resource um, or person or, you know, whatever that may be that you have found in your career? Uh, well, for me, my my career has been mostly here at Georgia, and there's been some really fantastic people that I've worked with. Um, probably the most influential on my career has been was Ron Corson, who's our head athletic trainer, and he's on every committee and every and presence in every athletic training setting that there is. But um, you know, just for as far as longevity in the field, and just influential on my personal. Uh, career path it would have to be Ron sure yeah I can't think of like a res a resource other than a, a human resource like mm -hmm. a person so um, I have two one is um, Leon Kugler who was my athletic training program director in undergrad who has became and has remained one of my best friends we talk almost weekly um, and has just been a really big cheerleader for me in every stage of life and Made me, always made me feel like I could do it. And I was like smarter or better than I had made myself out to be in my mind. And then another one is Kevin Guskowitz, who is my PhD advisor and is now the chancellor at UNC um, in terms of um, leadership and character. He set an amazing example. Kevin has amazing ability to um, 
to bring out the best in people and make you want to work harder and do everything to the best of your ability. And that's something that he taught me throughout my time at UNC that I'm really grateful for. And it's been really fun to kind of watch an athletic trainer function in such a, a highly ranked administrative role. Sure. And um, I know one of our other co-hosts, uh, Joel Lukey, he's a big professionalism and, um, you know, leadership guy. So I, I know that he's especially going to, uh, appreciate kind of hearing that because um, he's kind of doing some research on his own now to to really develop that in the profession. So um, we definitely appreciate your guys' insight on that. Mm -hmm. Our next one for you is if you could change or eliminate uh, one thing in the field of athletic training, what would it be? Um, a lot of times people talk about a modality, maybe a common practice that people tend to, to abide by, um, a mindset, whatever that may be. I've got one. Um, one uh, that I often cover in my organization administration task is um, presence as a healthcare provider and dressing and acting and presenting ourselves in a way that makes it unmistakable that we are healthcare providers. I think that's a mindset that um, I would I would encourage in the athletic training profession. It's a bit of a shift. I see some people doing a great job at it and some not as well, but I think it's something that's critical to the, the long-term success of our profession. When we run out on a field, people should know that those are healthcare providers and that should be unmistakable. Now how to distinguish that, there's a lot of different ways, but I think that's one thing is that professionalism and that look. Sure. Emily, yeah. I don't really have one. I mean, uh, I guess a kind of a pet peeve of mine is when people use like incorrect terminology for medical things that makes me a little crazy. So, you know, especially applicable to concussions now, you know, people, oh, we just got ding, you know, the, the, the old school way to describe concussions, I think does more harm than good these days. So that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Call it what it is. Oh, that, I mean, Definitely makes sense, and I, I would definitely agree with you with the, you know, bell rung and dinged and all those kind Top of webs. Um, so yeah, definitely some room for improvement there. I guess our, our last question for you guys would be, um, what does being an athletic trainer mean to you? I kind of said this earlier, but to me, to me, being an athletic trainer means being a part of one of the coolest professions. I really think athletic training is just really unique in than any other healthcare profession in a lot of ways that I really love. Like I just really love that, that grittiness, that resilience, that love for sport and team um, and, and the love for excellence, like in, in high caliber work uh, that brings a lot of us to performing arts or sport or whatever level but um, that's, I, that's what I love most about athletic training. Awesome. I think for me, what I would say that I kind of miss the most about cl my clinical practice is knowing your athletes as people and, and not, you know, especially like with D1 athletics, like we talked about, it's, you know, a lot of times the athletes are, they're just a number or they're just a name or they're just a stat line. And I really miss knowing them as people and knowing their quirks and knowing what they're going to need and anticipating, you know, medical things that they're going to need or knowing just knowing how to make them the best on the field that they can be and that's something that 
um, was probably my favorite part of my time clinically was being able to be a part of something bigger, like Julian was saying, and being, you know, being the person that they looked to, to kind of help them get to where it is. If it's, whether it's rehab or knowing when they're going to lose their mouthpiece and need a new one, or, you know, just little things like that is, um, that was really a fun, fun time for me. Awesome. I know we, uh, we definitely appreciate your guys' insight um, and for just taking the time to sit down and talk. Um, I know I kind of mentioned before, but we'll definitely link your guys' uh, kind of webpage there. It has some of the articles that we kind of referenced, um, just a lot more information about uh, what these ladies do and, and their team um, doing some really great cutting edge things. Um, you know, UGA has always had a very good reputation with athletic training and education. So um, definitely check that out. And then um, I guess, do you guys have anything to add? I think we covered it. Yeah, no, it was. Um, Thanks for having us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Um, definitely appreciate your guys' answers and um, hopefully our, our audience does too, but uh, you guys definitely answered some, some good questions. So um, thank you very much for your time and uh, we, we definitely appreciate it here.